1: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Fly ball, right field, hit pretty well. Walker's going out. It is
0: gone!
1: Kyle Schwarber's number 35. And a fly ball to deep center field. O'Neal gone. Deep to right field. It's gone. A solo home run for Schwarber. It's his 40th of the year. Back-to-back 40 home run seasons.
0: Goodness. Mercy.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Patriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today's Thursday, September 7th. We have a lot to get into. The American League West and wildcard race is sort of exploding. The Astros have made a statement, and Texas has kind of fallen apart. We're going to try to guess who on earth might actually pitch for the Dodgers in October. Maybe it's Matt. Maybe it's you, because I certainly don't know right now. Uh, We're going to talk about batting orders. If you know me, I never talk about batting orders. So the fact that I'm actually bringing this up tells you there's something really interesting happening. And we're going to talk about Kyle Schwarber's extremely weird season before we get into a pair of guys you should know more about. And I'm so excited about my guy. I'm extremely excited about my guy, even though he's on Matt's team. The Mets. First, we're going to talk about the American League West and wildcard. Matt, I don't know how much you watched of the Houston versus Texas series that was so highly promoted. Max Scherzer, Versus Justin Verlander did not go well for the Rangers. Houston swept the series. They outscored them 39-10. 16 home runs, 50 hits for the Astros, and to add injury to insult, Adolis Garcia had to leave yesterday with a knee injury. An MRI is forthcoming. If the season ended today, Texas would miss the playoffs, which is a wild thing to say. Blur, like a blip in the season? Or is this this sort of where we are right now with the Rangers?
0: Let's talk about the Astros for a second. Because the Astros now sit in first place on their own in the American League West. And I I think I picked them to win the division preseason. My guess is you did too. I'd have to go back. Well, now now that you brought it up, I, I have my predictions handy. So I'm just waiting for them to
1: load. Let's see. I had Houston 95 wins, Seattle 90. I had Texas in fourth place behind the Angels. So don't listen to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, going into the season, my feeling about the AO West was the same as the NL East, which is like, I will pick a different team when someone actually gives me a reason to pick a different team. And like, I'll keep picking the Astros as long as they still seem reasonably like adequate as a roster, which they did. And so the fact that they're in first place now isn't necessarily surprising to me based on what I thought in March. But like, there were some points in the season where it was like, uh, is this really going to happen for them. You know, it looked like the Rangers were going to take take the division. And, you know, Astros, to their credit, you know, they seem to be getting right at the right time. You know, they, they got Verlander, who's, like, been effective, even if his peripheral num- secondary numbers aren't spectacular, but he's still been effective. He was effective again last night. Michael Brantley's back and hitting home runs, um, which is a nice bonus. Um, Altuve's healthy and... Looks fantastic. He homered in four straight innings this series. Like you're like, oh wow, the Astros look really good again. And you know, you're looking at the playoff picture now. It's sort of like the Astros going back going back to the World Series. Like I don't, I don't know where you stand on that.
1: The Astros lineup looks really good. It's weird to say this, but I don't trust the Astros pitching at all. Which is kind of wild because if you remember how they went to the post the World Series last year, it's like oh they've, they've got they've got so many good pitchers they can't even find a spot to get like Arcadia and Javier in. And now you look at it and it's like oh you know okay Framber Valdez has been great. Javier's velocity uh, and the rise on his fastball is way down. I don't trust him at all. Uh, JP France is out pitching all of his peripherals. Arcadia's got like a five and a half ERA. I think the bullpen's still pretty good, but this is not the same Astros rotation we're used to. I mean Verlander's been pretty good. Lovie's been great. I don't think you should have expected that at forty, but like I look at the potential American League teams that they might play, assuming they get to the playoffs, right? Do I like their rotation better than the top of Minnesota's? I don't. I don't think I do, right? Uh, Baltimore's maybe, but like Baltimore, I always feel like can figure out the pitching. I just there's more questions about the rotation here uh, than there have been in a long time. I like Seattle's better than theirs.
0: We'll talk about this in more detail. I think when we get to, when we talk about the Dodgers later. The Astros are still well positioned in that they still have a lot of guys you trust to put out there. And it's just a matter of figuring out like how to use them, right? Like, Hunter Brown, when asked to go deep in the games this year, has not been especially effective, especially in the second half. He started out great. He's really kind of faded in the second half. But I think that, like, when you go into the postseason, you change the expectations of what you're asking him to do. It's like, hey, we really just need you to give us four innings that can change the mindset and change the way you set up because I still think starting with Framber Valdez and Justin Verlander is a pretty good start cuz like Verlander I still think is like he's not spectacular but I think can reliably give you solid innings even against good teams and that's like really all you can hope for in the postseason
1: Houston now has ninety eight percent playoff odds of FanGraphs. So that's just to get into the playoffs, not necessarily to win the division. But it seems clear they will be there in some capacity. And if you look at the wild card right now, uh Tampa Bay is like wildly at first place. They might still win the East, but they're gonna get either them or Baltimore will have the first wild card. Right now it stands as Seattle is second, Toronto is third, Texas is slightly beyond, and then Boston and the Yankees aren't out yet. And I I know they're all out the Yankees are playing better and there's still two series left against Toronto and Texas is collapsing. So like, if they get in, I want you to remember that we talked about this right now. The the upcoming, uh, really the remaining schedule for the three teams most heavily in the mix, Seattle, Toronto, and Texas is actually really interesting because this weekend, Seattle has to go to Tampa, right? Toronto gets to host Kansas City and Texas gets to host Oakland. (laughs) And I feel like if you want to be a playoff team, it's hard to go into any series and say, You have to sweep, but you got to win the series. If you can't host Kansas City and Oakland and win, you don't belong in the conversation. Is that disrespectful? Sure. But it's also the truth.
0: Yes. That said, on Sunday, the Blue Jays will be facing none other than... Cole Reagans okay so that actually just changed changes changes the equation a little bit um, for the weekend because he's basically been the best pitcher in the American League for the last six weeks I don't even give or give or take but yeah it's it's funny because I was looking at the schedule and how it lines up for the weekend I was like oh wow the Rangers get to host the A's that's that's the cure for what ails them and I was like let's see how the Blue Jays have it's like oh the Blue Jays have the team that's almost as bad as the A's can I throw some extreme cold water on the Cole Reagan strain?
1: extremely pitched well, no doubt about that. His last three games, he's thrown nineteen scoreless innings. Do you know which teams he's pitched against? Uh the A's was one of them. Yeah. Pirates. Yeah. Very good. And White Sox. Your Chicago White Sox. Hey, not bad. Three for three. Not exactly three of the best hitting teams. I don't want to take anything away from him. Right. But he's not exactly going through like the 1927 Yankees here. What's fun though is like after that, right, so Toronto plays KC, Texas plays Oakland, Texas at Toronto. There's head to head happening right here. That is going to be a wildly entertaining series. And then if you look ahead, Toronto ends their season with uh two two different series. They go at Yankees Tampa and versus Yankees Tampa, right? Seattle and Texas play each other twice. Once in Seattle, once in Texas. I'm very, very pleased that this has all lined up in a way that I think Every single almost every single series for the rest of the year for these teams at, at any given time, one of them will be like a direct playoff uh implication game,
0: which I like a lot. And one thing I'll mention on that Rangers Blue Jays series is that they've it's a four-game set. The Blue Jays are one and two against the Rangers thus far this season. So that right now the Rangers hold that tiebreaker, right? So this four game they could end up like, and it will end up with an odd number because they play seven games against each other. So like this series is almost like an extra. There's almost like an extra game attached to it because whoever wins the tiebreaker is essentially gets like a, a free game in the standings for the purposes of a playoff spot. So it's like like as you watch that series, it's like something really important to keep in mind that right now the Rangers go in with a two to one edge. So they if they win two games, that's like extremely significant for their playoff odds.
1: Where are the three wildcard teams. Put you on the spot right now.
0: I will admit, I almost I've been taking it as a foregone conclusion for weeks that the Rangers would be in the playoffs, but I have the, I don't think the Rangers will make the playoffs at this point. I think the the bullpen, the lack of bullpen depth, and this is you know this is where we're we're constantly reminded, and it's like I feel like I have amnesia every baseball season of just how long the baseball season is. Even though they fortify their starting rotation, you still need to get those innings, and like for them, getting innings like six through eight is like a real challenge every night and it's only. It, i'm not to i don't want to say it's only going to get worse but i just don't see how it's going to get significantly better between now and the end of the end of the season and i think that the rangers will be the team on the outside looking in
1: i would have to go back and listen but i think i said exactly that on the show like three weeks ago
0: i think i said toronto in
1: texas out and, uh, I've never made a wrong prediction on the show ever. So if that one comes to fruition, I'm definitely going to go back and check it. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back on the MLB.com ballpark dimensions podcast.
0: Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Each week, we move into our three batter minimum, three interesting topics of the week. The very first one may or may not be interesting depending on which team you root for. Who's going to pitch for the Dodgers in October? You may remember the 2023 Dodgers is getting off to a weird slow start and then being absolutely red hot in August, mostly because of Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. And now there's a couple of pitching things that have happened over the last few weeks where it's like openly unclear who will start even one game of a postseason series for them, which is wild. Now, here's what we know. Tony Gonsolin is out for the year. Tommy John surgery that happened last week. Dustin May, we already knew would be out because surgery a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. Uh, Julio Urias, unfortunately, is on the administrative leave list because of another domestic violence incident. We don't know what will happen there, but it seems pretty unlikely he will pitch for the Dodgers this year or ever again. And Walker Bueller is still recovering from his Tommy John surgery and only just made his first rehab start in AAA. And if you look at Clayton Kershaw, you'd say, well, hey, all-time God, legendary Clayton Kershaw. He is the rock that we can rely upon. Well, Clayton Kershaw has made five starts since returning from his shoulder injury. You may look at a 2.86 ERA and say it's great. I might look at a 6.67 FIP and say not so great. And when he started on Tuesday against Miami, threw zero pitches that got up to 90 miles an hour. And in fact, had the lowest fastball velocity in a game of his entire career at 88.2 miles an hour. The only other time in his career, he had an average fastball under 89, was back in May of 2018, and he immediately went on the injured list. After that game, nobody's lying here, right? Dave Roberts and is upfront about saying, "Yeah, he's not 100." We know he missed time with a shoulder injury. Kershaw keeps saying, "I'm fine, I'm fine," but like, what else is he going to say? I don't know that I trust him to get through the rest of the regular season, much less go deep into a postseason. And here's going to be a fun fact: Kershaw right now has thrown 117.1 innings, tied with Arias. Kershaw is going to lead the Dodgers in innings pitched with like 130. Two or something. That's going to lead the team in innings. I'm going to have to go back and see if that's like the lowest team lead they've ever had outside of 2020. 130 ish. What a weird baseball world we have this year. What are the Dodgers going to do?
0: As I alluded to earlier, I think that the you know you have to go into the postseason with just a different mindset of what you're expecting from your starting pitchers. More and the Dodgers more so than ever. And I think that they're a team that will kind of figure that out in a way that will probably upset purists because we'll end up with a lot of weird like openers and semi-openers, pitchers pitching two innings, bullpen games, like looking at the expectations for the Dodgers starting pitching in the postseason, like even a compromised Clayton Kershaw, I think could maybe still turn over a lineup twice, you know, just on guile and assuming he actually can lift his arm. Um, and Well, there's that. There's that, and then like, but then you look at the rest of the names, like, you know, the, the, the guy I probably trust most to be good is Bobby Miller, but like I wouldn't expect him to give you more than five innings tops, um, Lance Lynn, it's sort of the same boat as what I said about before about Kershaw. Like if you lower the expectations of like, Hey, I just need you to face, you know, 15 matters that's different than I need you to try and give me a quality start, right? Like it changes the equation. Same thing for Walker Buehler, who's like the big wild card, but even if Walker Buehler comes back and is good, like he's not pitching more than three innings in an outing, right? Like maybe four. Like So I think that's kind of how to have to look at it. It's just like we're not ever going to be asking our starting pitchers to give us five plus innings. And as long as we go with that mindset with all the days off, we can like figure this out.
1: Yeah, and they tried, right? They tried to get Eduardo Rodriguez at the deadline and he decided not to come, you know, sort out of their hands. Obviously the whole situation with Arias is unexpected and disappointing, not something you can really plan around. And Lance Lynn seemed like a good, Back of the rotation pickup, because, you know, his first four starts with the Dodgers, four earned runs, that was pretty good. 18 earned runs in his last three, including eight home runs. He's now allowed 40 home runs. And, I don't know, I guess it depends a little bit on who you face. I mean, it seems right now that they're locked into the number two spot, right? They're not going to catch Atlanta for the number one spot. They're not going to be caught for number two, so they'll get a bye. And then they'll face the winner of the 4-5 matchup, which is still fluid, but seems highly likely to be Phillies Cubs, right? And if you're the Dodgers, are you going to be that confident with the Phillies coming in in that series if that's what happens? I I would pick the Phillies in that in a heartbeat, I think. Maybe I'm going too much on vibes, but also Zach Wheeler looks great, and I don't know who's going to pitch for the Dodgers. I would abs- I'm getting way ahead of myself here. But I think what's going to happen is uh, one of two things. Number one, people are going to learn the word piggyback in a baseball context, as you kind of mentioned before. No one's going eight innings here, right? You're going to have, you know, uh, Bueller come in and pitch two innings ahead of like bulk guy Ryan Yarbrough, or there's going to be a whole game where it's like Ryan Pepio and Michael Grove and Gavin Stone. That's kind of the other thing is. There's like a non-zero chance that this works because all the rookies just shove. And we remember this as like the greatest rookie pitching staff ever because, you know, Ryan Pepio throws a shutout in the World Series and Michael Grove and Gavin Stone go, and it's like, talent, you know, Bobby Miller. We don't need all the little guys. It's it's going to end poorly. <laughs> I'm not
0: confident about this. Did you, did you see did you see Lance Lynn's quote about giving up 40 homers? I did. Do you have it handy? Because it if, was amazing. Once you go over 30, who gives a Blank. (laughs)
1: Um, I can actually tell you exactly what's going to happen. They're going to have a great regular season. They're going to get bounced in the playoffs. Uh, Dave Roberts is going to get pounded for the way he chooses to deploy his pitchers, and nobody will pay attention to the fact that Betts and Freeman went like two for 22 in the postseason (laughs) because that's always what happens all right our second topic let's talk about batting orders i never like to talk about batting orders because they never really matter right you put your three worst hitters at the bottom and your six best hitters at the top and it's generally all that matters however i did find something that i find really interesting happening this year for the first time ever and it's the culmination of a trend that started about 10 years ago so go back to 1920 look through 1922, this is pretty much all baseball history, and figure out each year which lineup spot has been the most valuable in terms of OPS. Uh, 51 times it's the cleanup spot, 43 times it's the number three spot, and those two spots have been tied eight times. It's never been any other spot. It's always the third spot. It's always the fourth spot. That's why Babe Ruth wore number three. That's why Luke Garrig wore number four. This year, for the first time ever, the number two spot is the most valuable spot in the batting order, which is absolutely wild. And you think about the guys that are hitting, you know, at or near the top. Freeman hits two, you know. Trout and Otani bounce around the top. Uh, Aaron Judge hits earlier in the lineup. And, and what's happening here, uh, and I wrote about this, which will be up on the site uh, on Friday, I think, is that basically nothing had changed in lineup construction Um, until like 2012. Like you could have looked at a 2012 lineup and compared it to a 1912 lineup and the shape would have been exactly the same. I don't know, Matt, if you remember, maybe I wrote about this uh, with you like 10 years ago. Why are the Reds letting Billy Hamilton hit at the top just because he's fast, even though he cannot get on base? Please, dear God, give Joey Votto someone on base, right? And like that slowly started to change when like Trout started to hit second, but it never reached a tipping point until this year and this is the first time number two has been most valuable. And while I know it doesn't matter because like batting orders or whatever, I find that really interesting. Like we've finally optimized the batting order, I think.
0: I think it's great. And I think we talked about this recently when we talked a little bit about Freddie Freeman hitting second. And... Our colleague, Tom Tango, I think, deserves a lot of credit for this. He wrote about this in his book like 15 years ago. And I remember reading that book when it came out and, like, was eye-opening. And it was just like, like oh, this is so obvious. Like, the third spot's overrated because the third spot leads off the fewest number of innings. And it's like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. But that makes a lot of sense. And, like, once you start there, it's like, but when we were kids and up until a couple years ago, it's like three spot, that's that's where the, be- the best hitter hits third, the best power hitter hits fourth, That's just the way it was, and I think that it took a while for baseball as a whole because I think a lot of times for years managers have wanted to do this, and they've just been like it's not worth the battle. Like these players see third as prestige, like batting order. I think I'm 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 of the belief it matters more than you think, but like whatever value it thinks, they're like it's not worth upsetting the apple cart. Like they see it's prestigious, third spots prestigious, but like having Trout, and then I think probably Aaron Judge is the ultimate, like like the big hulking slugger hit two was probably the, the sign that this is like, when he started hitting second, I don't know exactly when that was. He was doing it last year. That was like, okay, the gig is up. Like We're comfortable putting anyone second. What's also funny to me is that actually, in some ways, the the, the number one spot got weird before the number two spot got weird because I feel like teams started using the number one spot for high OBP slow guys like 7 years ago and the number 2 spot became like the the spot for the best hitter officially I guess now this year.
1: Yeah, for what it's worth uh you know Earl Weaver who was like way ahead of his time in so many ways did this a little bit in the 70s and wrote about it in his book in the early 80s. So it's not like oh we never thought about this until now. But you know putting it into practice is something different. But here's some numbers right. Uh, if you look at the 20 seasons from 1993 to 2012 uh, and you look at each spot in the lineup compared to the average for that year, right? The first leadoff spot was like ever so slightly below average. And second spot was basically average. Third spot was 26% above and the cleanup was 25% above, right? Enormous gaps. And you look at it over the last uh, three years. Well, what happened is like the first two spots got better. You know, uh, the second spot is now 14% above average, but the third spot and the fourth spot got worse because those great hitters have now migrated up in the lineup, which kind of makes sense because... The higher you hit in the lineup, the more plate appearances you get, and the better chance of when that lineup turns around again, and maybe late in the game, that your best hitter is not sitting on deck, he might actually be hitting. So it's like, has this meaningfully changed the game in a way anybody who wasn't looking at the numbers would notice? Probably not. But it's nice to see that guys are actually putting some thought into this. My, my Here's my real question. Will this continue happening like for years to come? Like you think about the legends of hitting number three, and it's like Ruth, Mays, and Griffey, and Pujols. And now it's like, would Babe Ruth wear number two today? Does Derek Jeter need a new number? I think that's really interesting to think about. Our third topic, Kyle Schwarber is having a great, if confusing, season. He has 41 home runs. Also, someone who's hitting leadoff, a non-traditional <laughs> leadoff, especially on a team with Trey Turner. Uh, he has 41 home runs, and he has 0.6 wins above replacement. That's the baseball reference version. Fangraphs will say he has 1.1 war, whatever. The point is that this has gotten a lot of people up in arms because how can a guy who's hitting 41 home runs and is going to drive in 100 uh, be considered as a replacement level player? Wins above replacement is broken. And I find that all very interesting. I think the right answer here is not that you have to absolutely defend war, but you need to at least understand why it's saying. And our third topic, Kyle Schwarber is having a very interesting, if unusual, season. He's going to have... He's 41 homers right now, and he's got 0.6 wins above replacement. Speaking of non-traditional leadoff hitters, Fangraph says 1.1, Baseball Ref says 0.6, whatever. The point is, a guy who's got 41 home runs is just not going to rate very well in wins above replacement, and that gets a lot of people very angry. They say that the metric must be broken because how can you hit that many home runs and not be a very valuable player? And I don't think you really need to say, well, the metric must be perfect and must be correct, but we can at least talk about it, right? Here's the thing that's most interesting to me, Matt, about this entire argument, controversy, whatever. Would you agree with me that the older school fan is more likely to say, no, I don't believe wins above replacement. This guy is valuable because he's got a ton of home runs. At the same time, they're now defending a guy who's hitting 195 with 177 strikeouts which seems to be the kind of player that the oldest fan also doesn't write you can really twist yourself in pretzels uh about all of this for me no one disputes he is a really really poor defender and he's not a great base runner so it comes down to the fact can you agree that a guy who's gonna have 41 homers uh and a 195 batting average is only 23 percent above average as a hitter that's what ops says right it basically it comes down to Should he be a more valuable hitter? Forget the rest of it because he's hitting 41 home runs. And I don't know. I feel like home runs are great. Here's the funniest thing the shift got banned, and his batting average on balls and play dropped 42 points. We should talk
0: about that more. That's the weird thing. That is wild. Like, that is like, because he, you know, like in theory, he should be the kind of player that benefits most from the. Limits on the shift and like the fact that it's down 42 points is kind of mind blowing. I feel like we almost need to do a deeper dive just on this. Oh, so
1: I can tell you why quickly. Do you want to know why? Um, because the shift is down, he's pulling the ball way more than ever because he doesn't see that guy in right field. So he's like, this is great. I'm going to pull the ball, except positioning isn't banned. So he still like hits the ball to where they're positioned and he's not a slow base runner. Right. So uh, I think that's what's happening here. I mean, he's having a real good season, but if you look, at the players who have ever hit 40 home runs and had a wins above replacement under one it's only happened five times including schwarber right and only three other guys have done adam Dunn did it twice jeff burrows did it back in 1977 and here's my favorite one remember chris carter he did it in 2016 he hit 41 home runs with an almost identical ops to what kyle schwarber has and he got non-tendered or DFA'd or whatever after the season and played a little bit the next year, and he was out of baseball. And I'm I'm not arguing Kyle Schwarber should not be in baseball. Let's make that super clear. But it's funny how differently we perceive these kind of guys.
0: Yeah, it's, it's Schwarber is a is a very interesting one because like. I will concede he's not a good defender and he's not a good base runner. He's a bad defender, right? That's what this is all. This is ultimately what it's all about. That like he's, you know, according to Alts above average, he's in the first percentile for, for for fielders. Like he's basically as bad as you get. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, we have seen Kyle Schwarber, as recently as last year in the postseason, make a huge impact as a hitter. Now, granted, you you know because of Bryce Harper's injury, you can't hide him as much. Although I literally just got a alert while we were recording this podcast about Bryce Harper being open to being a full time first baseman, so maybe this is the uh, the <laughs> the the step that we're we're getting to. But um, you can't hide Schwermer if 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 Harper's de aging. But like, he is someone that has you know, it's a soft factor, right? It's an intangible thing, but it's like he comes up in the lineup. And this is, you're like, oh, how are we going to pitch this guy? This guy's tough in a way that no one ever talked about Chris Carter. Now, maybe if Chris Carter had been on great teams as opposed to 110 lost Astros teams, we might think about him differently. But I do think that like, and this also, you know, again, this might come back to just aura of Schwarber, you know, missing the 2016 season and then showing up in the World Series for the Cubs. And after having not played all year, like he has a rep. he is a very famous baseball player with like no big moments. So it's sort of hard to separate that from like a cold blooded analysis, if that makes sense. It
1: does. And it's, as you kind of just said,
0: this isn't necessarily
1: his fault. They signed him to be a DH, right? Everybody knows his defensive limitations. Hasn't worked out that way because Harper got hurt. And obviously you can look at it as, well, he's standing up and taking one for the team, but playing in a spot they need him to, even though he's not necessarily great out there. It's, it's probably hurt his numbers by doing what the team has asked him to do. But also, I don't think that means the Winsborough replacement is wrong. He's hit a ton of home runs and done almost nothing else.
0: That's how it comes out in the wash. And the, But the fact of the matter is also is the Phillies are going to win like 95 games again with him and then go into the playoffs and... It's clearly not, hasn't been so, you know, I guess it's like if they replaced him with some like, you know, I'm trying to think of like a generic left fielder who like has two war, would they be a better team as, you know, it's like, it's, that's like, are the Phillies better if they have, I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank on generic left, generic average left field.
1: Robbie Grossman, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Andrew Benintendi in left field. Like, you know, like I don't think anyone would say they are. No, he's. He's not average. <laughs> no, I,
1: I agree with you on that. No, at Benetton, he's not a good example. He's he's a lousy defender as well. Uh, I'm with you. I think on the Philly vibe check, um, he is worth one million more. And I think that's mostly what they care about right now. We'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about a pair of guides you should know a little bit more about. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Each week, we like to introduce you to a pair of guys you should know a little bit more about, and I am so excited about my guy, DJ Bleepin Stewart, Mets legend, DJ Stewart, right now in a lost Mets season. He has a 971 OPS. He's a 162 OPS plus in 39 games with 10 home runs. It's mostly real a 402 weighted on base to 377 expected and his hard hit rate of 51 percent is great is it possible he's a flash in the pan that you never think about again sure but i'm really enjoying that he's here at all once i explain to you why i'm so excited to have chosen him as my guy here's how we got here he was actually the 25th overall pick in the 2015 draft one pick behind walker bueller this was the draft where swanson and alex bregman went one two Uh, He made it up with the Orioles in 2018, didn't do that much over the next couple years, you know, 224 batting average from 18 to 20, but a 105 OPS plus. However, the man had an absolutely cursed 2019. He hurt his ankle in a collision with infielder Hans Alberto, missed a month, and in his very first came back, he went viral with one of the more unfortunate baseball clips of the last 10 years, which is where he dove way too early to catch a ball. The ball hit him in the head and he got a concussion and he missed more time awful way to have your season ruined. The next year, the fake season of 2020 only got into 31 games. However, he had an 18% walk rate and a 19% barrel rate. And in that offseason, when you may remember, we're all wondering how much baseball we'd be fortunate enough to get. And those of us trying to produce content were desperate for any sort of content. I wrote up a list of guys I thought may breakout players. And I included DJ Stewart in that list with my favorite insane correlation chart i think i've ever done where i was able to point out all the little dots where dj stewart was next to and i quote Freddie freeman ronald acuna jr bryce harper and juan soto capital d dudes what this was was comparing barrel rate and walk rate he was up there with those guys in terms of crushing the ball and having a good eye in terms of the walk rate now did i think he was going to turn into juan soto probably not And of course, the next year, he posts a 91 OPS for a bad Orioles team, a 91 OPS plus, and then was designated for assignment uh, right after opening day of 2022, signed a minor leagues deal with the Mets last winter, called up on July 4th. There was a quote I found, though, from Joel Sherman. Mets GM Billy Eppler told me that Stewart was a priority to sign to a minor league deal last offseason because the Mets liked his underlying numbers so much, to which I say, Thank you for reading, Billy Epler. I will try to help you out more in the future. Is this for real? I don't know. First round draft pick pedigree. He's sort of like a rich man's Daniel Vogelback, I think, in the sense that like he's a little more aggressive and can actually sort of play a position where Vogelback can't. Uh, but I think he's going to get a shot next year. And I'll leave you with this, map. I was on vacation last weekend, and I was driving around in Pennsylvania, and the only radio station I could get was actually the WFAM, the New York sports radio station, where I enjoyed listening to one host uh, argue they should have called up Ronnie Mauricio earlier, and then got really mad they spent so much time wasted on guys like Rafael Ortega and then compared DJ Stewart to Justin Turner. I really enjoyed that. DJ Stewart.
0: I mean, you know, the met got burned by Justin Turner so they're always worried that they're going to let let the next one go and, you know, there's a big gap between could he be a useful like fourth outfielder type and Justin Turner? And both things would could be useful for the 2024 Mets. Obviously, if he turned in Justin Turner, that would be very useful. But even just like good outfielder who can hit some home runs, I mean, good fourth outfielder who can hit some home runs would also be useful for the 2024 Mets or any other teams. I'm actually not exactly sure. He signed a minor league deal. I'm not sure I as a free agent. I'm not sure if he becomes a free agent or if the Mets have his – um. Uh, arbitration rights I'm actually not sure of what his situation is but I, he will be he will get a major league contract for next year based on the way he's played this year um that's my whether it's with the Mets or somewhere else yeah for my guy this week I want to take you all back to the doldrums of the spring of 2020 this was oh, I want this just the beginning of covid lockdown we were all very lonely a little bit sad and depressed desperate desperate for baseball. Of any kind, we were watching old games. We were watching like I was watching old playoff games, right? To fill that, we 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 rebroadcast old opening day games. That's how desperate we were. And people watched them. It was great. It was cool. In May of 2020, an unknown junior college pitcher went viral for throwing in a bullpen session a 105 mile an hour fastball. You have probably forgotten about this pitcher, even though he was viral for like 36 hours. Uh, In 2020, well, he got called up by the Chicago Cubs yesterday and made his Major League debut. His name is Luke Little. And in his Major League debut, while he was only topping out at 97.5 miles per hour on his four-seam fastball um, in his debut, he looked very good against the San Francisco Giants. Yes, I know the Giants' offense is not much. Um, Threw a scoreless inning, two strikeouts. He threw three sweepers. All three swing strikes on all three of them. He had four, a forty-one percent strikeout rate across double A AA and triple A this year. He's six foot eight left-handed, and he can throw well, I don't want to say 105, but he goes up to high nineties, up to triple digits. And every year in the postseason, some random reliever appears and people are like where did this dude come from? And this year, since it looks like the Cubs are going to make it to the postseason, I could very well see like the first time he comes into a game in the postseason, it's like, who's this six foot eight lefty? And then the broadcast will be like, well, back in May of 2020, you may recall, he went viral for throwing 105 in a clip that went you know went crazy on Twitter. Well, there you go, Luke Little, guy you should know more about. Hat tip to Jason Catania, my colleague who brought him to my attention, reminded me of the viral clip from three years ago. Since you brought up someone like Luke Little, I'm going to take the opportunity to
1: jump onto one of my favorite hobby horses for a minute. He was called up September 6th, as you said, and the Cubs are pretty likely to go to the playoffs. And I'm pretty sure that 80% of fans think the Cubs are idiots for not calling him up by September 1st, which presumably would make him post eligible. But it's not true? There's loopholes all over the place nobody remembers francisco rodriguez little was in the post the organization by august 31st he can be postseason eligible it will be fine and i hope matt that you're right i hope that he gets called in into a postseason game and goes nuts and people lose their minds that'll do it for this week's podcast don't miss an episode by subscribing on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you're enjoying the show or having any suggestions leave us a rating and a review thanks for listening to the ballpark dimensions podcast see you next week